Welcome back to another episode of Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that wishes you a happy Indigenous Peoples Day and would like to remind you that... Fun fact, Columbus is in the bad place because of all the raping, slave trade, and genocide. So we're back today with another episode where I destroy your fond nostalgia of the bygone days of Americana. Today we're talking about the 1950s, those quaint days of poodle skirts, sock hops, drive-in movies, and dates at the soda fountain. We have an obsession with this period's aesthetic in America to a nearly unhealthy degree, I think. Even I have to admit to a certain fondness for the hair, the clothes, and the music. The 1950s was a real happen in time, the birth of rock and roll and television, the so-called golden age of Americana. But who was it actually the golden age for? It should surprise no one that the answer to that question is the traditional white middle-class family with 2.5 kids and a Chevrolet in the driveway of their suburban home. Of course, it was also the golden age for the very wealthy, but since when is any period not the golden age for them? But for anyone not a white heterosexual Christian, this period was decidedly less golden. The neat suburban homes with cookie-cutter white picket fences were usually governed by racial covenants that kept homes from being sold or even rented to people of color. Jim Crow laws covered the land, and the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare were galloping along at an almighty pace, putting the fear of being different into everyone. And despite the perceived economic boom in America, poverty was impacting more and more Americans, just not the ones that you saw in magazines and on the newsreels. So yeah, all in all, not exactly an ideal situation. But even the life of the white middle-class family wasn't the picture-perfect concept that reruns of Leave it to Beaver and the Donna Reed show sold to us. And they were selling something. The sitcoms and dramas of the 1950s were propaganda for an American dream that consisted of simple, distinct gender roles and the supremacy of capitalism. But I'll get into the impact of the Cold War on American culture in a future episode. For today, I want to focus on one particular myth of the golden age of America. The happy housewife. Well, it's sort of traditional, I guess. Uh, You know, they say a woman's place is in the home, and uh, I suppose as long as she's in the home, she might as well be in the kitchen. Ah. Think June Cleaver or Donna Reed, the wives and mothers who always have a string of pearls around their neck, a dress with a flouncy petticoat, a bright red lip on their smiling face, fresh baked cookies for her children after school, and a whiskey neat ready for her husband when he gets back from a long day at work. Given the archetypes of women prior to the 1950s in America, this was a marked regression in how women's roles in American society were viewed. The suffragettes of the first two decades, the flappers of the 1920s, the tough-as-nails women who did what they had to do to feed their families in the 1930s, and the rosy riveters of the 1940s. All of these suddenly gave way to Susie Homemaker in the 1950s. Why? Misogyny, mostly. But to understand how this took shape, let's rewind a bit back to the 1940s. In 1940, only about 15% of married women were employed. This stemmed from a stigma during the Great Depression that women should stay home and allow their husbands to take on the limited jobs that were available during the decade. On the other hand, nearly 50% of single women were working. 
But as World War II dragged on and America joined in, the stigma around married women and women in general taking jobs away from men is set aside. As men are deployed overseas, women are called to take their places in the manufacturing roles on the home front. Oh, oh. All the day long, where the rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, rosing the riveter. But what happens when the war ends and the men come home? Unsurprisingly, the men want their jobs back. And while there is no explicit, coordinated legal move to force women out of the workplace, the social pressure is definitely on. As a strange side note, this is also the period where we see the script really flip on pink versus blue as gendered colors. For many long years in European-based societies, pink had been a boy's color, and blue, for its association with the Virgin Mary, had been a girl's color. In the wake of World War II, the color pink begins to be marketed as the perfect color for women, while blue became a manly masculine color. Why? Well, mostly because First Lady Mamie Eisenhower's favorite color was pink. Not for any special reason, she just supposedly liked the way it looked on her skin and how it set off her eye color. The full-skirted, rhinestone-covered, pale pink ball gown and opera gloves that she ended up wearing to her husband's 1953 inauguration was the complete antithesis of the overalls that women had been wearing to work in factories during the war. It gave off a message that the men are home now and you can return to your traditional roles. Mamie certainly embodied that notion. She tossed off quotes like, Ike runs the country, I turn the pork chops, and I have a career. His name is Ike. As a result, pink became associated with the feminine and became part of the societal pressure for women to conform to certain feminine roles in society. One of the best, or worst, depending on your perspective, primary sources on this social pressure is the book The Modern Woman, The Lost Sex, which was written by Ferdinand Lundberg and Dr. Marina Farnham and published in 1947. The book would become a national bestseller and contribute to a growing pressure for women to return to the domestic sphere after the end of the war. The modern woman argued that the contemporary woman in very large numbers are psychologically disordered and that their disorder is having terrible social and personal effects involving men in all departments of their lives as well as women. The book claimed that women's issues were caused by the loss of the self-contained traditional home, which had disastrously upset women's natural inner balance. The cure for all that ailed women and society? Passivity, sexual submission, and motherhood, obviously. Here's a contemporary newsreel discussing the book. The family was solidly founded on the father as patriarch and breadwinner, and on the mother as cook, housekeeper, and nurse of the children. One of the trends of modern life which has been cited as most disruptive of marriage is the increasing economic independence of women. Today, U.S. industry is employing hundreds of women who before the war were homemakers, devoting their full time to their families and their family responsibilities. Everywhere, children of working parents are being left without adequate supervision or restraint. Today, the woman with a position in business equal to a successful man's is economically able to terminate her marriage if she is so minded, since she is her own breadwinner. But are such women really better off? Strongly against careers for women is Dr. Marania Farnham, noted physician and co-author of the bestseller, Modern Woman, The Lost Sex. Catastrophic social forces have propelled American women away from femininity 
and into careers at terrific cost to themselves and society. Abandoning their feminine role has made women unhappy because it has made them frustrated. It has made children unhappy because they do not have maternal love. And it has made their husbands unhappy because they do not have real women as partners. Instead, their wives have become their rivals. Gotta love a professional woman like Dr. Farnham, not just pulling the ladder up behind her, but setting it on fire as she goes. Nice. Here's one particularly fun quote from the book. The dominant direction of feminine training and development today discourages just those traits necessary to the attainment of sexual pleasure, receptivity and passiveness, the willingness to accept dependence without fear of resentment, with a deep inwardness and readiness to accept the final goal of sexual life, impregnation. It was the essential error of feminists that they attempted to put women on the essentially male road to exploit, off the female road to nurture. Lundberg and Farnham's work was discussed by many magazines in the 1940s and 50s, and its themes were alluded to and discussed in many more. Women even used Lundberg and Farnham's book as a self-help text in advice columns in large newspapers. One advice columnist consistently referred readers to the book in the Washington Post in their column. Needless to say, it had a societal impact. The book is now out of print, by the way, but I do happen to own a 1947 copy of the book, and it's every bit as awful as it sounds. And The Modern Woman wasn't the only book pressuring women to remain in the home as mothers and wives. The original versions of Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care stuck to strict gender roles. The caregiver in his writing was always mother, the child was he. Child raising and housework were women's work. His popular advice column for Red Book Magazine warned young mothers not to do otherwise lest they harm their family. Women were advised to stay at home with their children. Dr. Spock popularized the concept of a child-centered family, and he, and many other psychiatrists at the time, pushed the idea that the central focus of a woman's life was meant to be motherhood. And then there came the boom of television. Now it wasn't just books and psychiatrists showing the happy ideal of the nuclear family, even the popular media pushed the same idea. By 1957, there were 40 million television sets in the United States. Nine out of ten American families owned at least one set by the end of the decade. By the mid-1950s, situation comedies and family dramas presented a very traditional family structure. A nuclear family with two biological parents and their children. Families in which, as the title of one of the popular shows put it, father knows best, and in which women were mothers and housewives striving to serve their children and please their husbands. Magazines and advertisements sold the same idea. Articles had headlines like, Have babies while you're young, and Are you training your daughter to be a wife? In 1953, Look Magazine celebrated the housewife as this wondrous creature who marries younger than ever, bears more babies, and looks and acts far more feminine than the emancipated girls of the 1920s or even the 30s. She gracefully concedes the top job rungs to men. Tide laundry detergent was advertised as what women want, and the Hoover Vacuum Company assured men that what their wife really wanted for Christmas was one of their vacuums. Quick pause for a little bit of advice. Unless a woman specifically asks you for an appliance for their birthday or Christmas, just just don't. Just, just don't. It's a really bad idea. Everything from textbooks to advertisements told women what they needed to do in order to be the ideal woman that men would want to marry. 
Men valued women who could cook, were a good housekeeper, and wanted children. In the 1950s, women felt tremendous societal pressure to focus their aspirations on getting a wedding ring. After all, society told women that marriage and motherhood was the most fulfilling thing they could do with their life. The U.S. marriage rate was at an all-time high, and couples were tying the knot, on average, younger than they ever had before. But it wasn't just in finding a man that a woman had to work hard, it was also in keeping him. Women had to keep up their looks, lest their husbands become disgusted by any sign of letting yourself go, or, God forbid, aging, and go out and look for a new, better woman to put their attentions on. The creation of the ideal woman gave a clear picture to women of what they were supposed to emulate as their proper gender role in society. In effect, women began to construct their identities around this media image. The problem with this is, the image was all an unachievable lie. The traditional family that the books recommended and the media presented wasn't something that most people could actually manage realistically in the 1950s, which meant women were killing themselves to live up to an ideal that never existed. That image we have of stay-at-home moms with no job other than looking after their husband and children? Yeah, right, sure, that existed. The number of married women working outside the home actually increased in the post-war years. The consumerism of the post-war period and the pressing need to keep up with the Joneses left most families needing two incomes. By 1960, nearly a third of all married women were part of the paid workforce. But of course, in true patriarchal fashion, that doesn't mean that their husbands took up a fair share of the household work or child-rearing activities. Much like today, women who worked were still taking on a large majority of the domestic chores. Cleaning, cooking, child-rearing, and of course their marital duties. How does a woman manage all of that? Well, not without a little help. Mother needs something today to calm her down. And though she's not really ill, there's a little yellow pill. She goes running for the shelter of her mother's little yeah, the Rolling Stones weren't writing about some sort of hypothetical social situation. Barbiturates and amphetamines, once used liberally by soldiers in World War II, became the tools for women to get through their day-to-day -day lives. Drugs like Milltown, Butasol, and Cerax were advertised to help women cope with daily stress and anxiety. Methadrine, the store name for methamphetamine hydrochloride, was used to treat depression, lose weight, and give women enough energy to get through the day. Medical columnists in magazines like Cosmo and Ladies Home Journal told women that sedative drugs were the cure for anything that ailed them. By 1960, women were twice as likely as men to be taking tranquilizers. In a 1956 article in Cosmopolitan, one doctor reported that after taking the drug, frigid women who abhorred marital relations reported they responded more readily to their husband's advances. Because straight men will do anything, up to and including encouraging their wives to roofie themselves before sex to avoid going to even one marriage counseling session or learning how to give their wives even one single orgasm. So I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't feel like women were feeling very fulfilled by these lives. I think Lundberg, Farnham, and Spock might have been a little bit off. In reality, this period of Americana was only the golden age for the smallest of small subsets of humanity, white, middle-class men, which is unsurprisingly usually the ones you see waving a giant red flag around as they talk about how much better life was in the 1950s when all you had to do to get ahead was be a mediocre white man. 
The connection between the anti-feminist and MRA movements of today and the ideology that the 1950s was the golden age of America is the straightest and shortest of all lines in existence. And just so you can't say I'm making that up, here's some proof. In 2014, well-known anti-feminist Phyllis Schlafly published her book, Who Killed the American Family? In it, she wrote that the 1950s were the high watermark for the American nuclear family. Social policies favored it, evidence supported it, and no one apologized for it. In a 2011 video for TV Ontario's The Agenda, which was titled Goodbye to Good Men, Jordan Peterson said, Remember those 50s hat-sporting fathers who stayed married, supported their families, and repressed women? Well, they're headed for extinction. In 2022, a TikTok creator named Jennifer Mock created a video in which a 1950s housewife and a modern woman discussed what life was like for women in the modern era, and the housewife decides that she prefers it in the 1950s. These voices, among others, are pushing for a return to the traditional family values of a nostalgic 1950s that never really existed in the first place, except in the fever dreams of conservative politicians who turned out the propaganda about America being the greatest nation in the world. But the worst part about all of this is they know that world never really existed. It doesn't take a historian to tell you that the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet and the Honeymooners weren't documentaries. They don't actually care that the 1950s was a miserable time for women and minorities because that's a feature for them, not a bug. Thank you for tuning in one more time to hear me bitch about history. Some of this episode might have sounded a little bit familiar to you. First, because I think I used a few bits of it in an episode last season. And second, because bits of it came from my PhD proposal, which a couple of you have definitely read. Oh well. I wanted to do a topic I love, and my love-hate relationship with the 1950s is always a fun topic to delve into. Please remember to subscribe to the Bitchy History Substack for additional reading and resources related to this episode, and I'll see you back here next week.